Welcome to the History of the Americans podcast, episode 143. I'm your host, Jack Henneman, and we are recording my end of this on February 11th, 2024, in New Orleans. For those few of you who are new to the podcast, we are telling the history of the lands now encompassed by the United States from the beginning without intentional presentism. As given away in the title, this episode is an interview. Our guest today is Joseph Kelly, author of the fantastic book Marooned, Jamestown, Shipwrecked, and a New History of America's Origin. Joe comes to us from a secure, undisclosed location in the vicinity of Charleston, South Carolina. Joe is professor of literature and the director of Irish and Irish-American studies at the College of Charleston. In addition to Marooned, in 2013, Joe published America's Longest Siege, Charleston's Slavery and the Slow March Toward Civil War, which details the evolving ideology of slavery in America. His first book was a study of the Irish novelist James Joyce, Censorship, Obscenity, and the Cold War. Right now, he's at work on a new book about free speech, fascism, and the invention of liberal democracy. This conversation, which was huge fun for me at least, covers a whole range of topics familiar to long-standing and attentive listeners, but with a new and innovative perspective. We talk about John Smith, Sir Francis Drake, who literally takes up a chapter in Joe's book, How Awesome Is That?, The Sea Venture Wreck, the role of the commoners and the struggle for survival on Bermuda, and the political philosophy of Stephen Hopkins, the one man to spend years in Virginia and then go on to sail on the Mayflower as a stranger among the Pilgrim Fathers. So was Hopkins the moving force for, or even the author, of the Mayflower Compact and the true original English-American political theorist? Finally, we have it out over the fraught question as between Jamestown and Plymouth, which of our founding mythologies most clearly reflects the Americans we have become. Joe brings a new perspective to that timeless argument. Now I bring you Joe Kelly. So we have here today Joseph Kelly, Joe Kelly, author of Marooned, Jamestown, Shipwrecked, and a New History of America's Origin, which I picked up at a Publishers stand at the American Historical Association meeting in San Francisco in early January and read in a white heat. I was quite taken with it and wished I'd had it at my disposal when I did the Jamestown episodes that almost all of you have heard. So, Joe, thank you very much for uh, agreeing to come on and talk about your book. Well, thank you very much yourself. I'm, it's a real privilege to, to be able to talk to such a great audience who's interested in these subjects. Well, we do have an excellent audience. Those that uh, have made it all the way through, we, re- we refer to as longstanding and attentive listeners, and they know a lot about uh, many of the topics you've brought up, but I don't think have synthesized them in the way you did uh, as I hadn't, uh, in, in all honesty. So maybe if you could tell us a little bit about the thesis of Marooned, the middle ground, how you came to write the book and, and so forth. Yeah, well, I'll, I'll start with the thesis, which is a, you know, a reinterpretation of what happens at Jamestown. And what I've tried to do is tell the story from the point of view who, of the people who are typically 
characterized as villains, uh, most specifically the the commoners who were employees or um, you know who had signed on to a contract with the Virginia Company and ended up finding something far different than what had been advertised when they when they signed on for that contract. Um, the the key for me was the third supply. That's it. The book started really with a study of the shipwreck in Bermuda, which inspired William Shakespeare's The Tempest. And that was and the, that was the Sea Venture. That was the Sea Venture, which was the um, the Admiral, the the flagship of a pretty large fleet that was supposed to really. Put Jamestown on on solid ground, kind of the way the English had been had been colonizing Ireland for years. I mean, really established an English town rather than a English garrison, just a fort. Um, and and the way I came, so you know, to come back to the thesis, what uh, what I found as I started reading the documents that have been you know available to everybody, and then now are available online to everybody. Um, these, this wonderful trove of, of original documents, uh, I, I started trying to read between the lines, read from kind of just a, an angle, a little off center, a little, uh, everyone has, has been suspicious and I think it knows that each of the authors of these documents had an ax to grind. Nobody takes John Smith for face value. They, they know he's got an agenda. But what I didn't think was that people had not appreciated that all of the writers were, were telling the story from the company point of view. So even as we recognized the, the, I don't know, the distortions that were put into the narratives as one faction was trying to you know, discredit another faction and, and praise its own people, what we hadn't done is looked at the story from, from the point of view of the commoners who don't have a voice, who at least didn't write any of the narratives. Um, if, if I had a chance to republish the book, I think I'd call it a people's history of Jamestown or something like that to really kind of advertise that that's, what, that's the angle that I'm looking at. And, and when you look at it from that angle, it seemed to me with that what we were really looking at is the birth of democracy in the United States. And I, I so ultimately, you know, I'm, I'm a professor of literature. I'm very interested in history of ideas or sort of, you know, those, those big sweeps of history kind of things, even though this book really digs down or really only spend, you know, most of it is on a couple of years of American history. But what I'm really interested in is how this idea of democracy came about. And what I discovered is what I think is a, a, a different myth of the origins of the United States, a, a myth that has actually been in competition with the pilgrims, you know, for a couple hundred years. And uh, I think it's kind of lost out to the pilgrim story. And so what I'm trying to do is restore focus on on Jamestown, on that original colony. But as I restore focus to shift the way we look at it, to actually try to find out what was happening, what, what, what was going on in the psychology of the people who are usually denigrated as the villains in the story. Or, or just the 
incompetent masses. I mean, it, you know, <laughs> even if they don't reach the the point of uh, of villainy. But I hear you with the yes, yes. characterization yeah. of desertions yeah. and everything else, right. mutinies, so, etc. So, so <clears throat> um, one of the things that you talk about is this idea of the middle ground, which you don't suggest yeah. is original with you, but you take yeah. it and apply it to yeah. both the Bermuda catastrophe and Virginia. What, tell us about that and how it infuses your story. Yeah, so the, the middle ground is this concept that um, there's a terror, you know, whenever there is a um, contact between civilizations, uh, on the edges of the civilization, far away from the metropolitan centers, um, you're going to find territory where people encounter each other and they mix together, they misunderstand each other, they accommodate each other, they come up with what is essentially a society that is different from either of the civilizations to which you know, that, that you would find at, at the metropolitan centers. So what happens on the Chesapeake is that you have these Europeans who come and they bring their European ways and they encounter Native Americans who have never really had Europeans living amongst their, in their midst before. And what very quickly takes place on the, uh, really all around the Chesapeake is going to be this kind of society that's neither English nor Native American. And it's, it's, it's not exactly correct to call it a blend between the two because there's, there's um, you know, there's still distinctions between the different peoples, but the English there are no longer really Englishmen and the Native Americans who are uh, dealing with the English are no longer fully Native American or not, you know, the, the, the culture that they have developed is distinct from the pre- you know, Jamestown Pre culture. Pre-contact, yeah. Pre-contact, yeah. Yeah, I, I, I'm a little hesitant to use that word because the, the, the natives on, on, on Native Americans in the Chesapeake, of course, knew about Europeans and they had contact with Europeans long before Jamestown. It's not like they were naive. You know, it's not when, when you know, 1607 and the English come ashore, it's not like they're wondering who are these strange people. They, they know that they're Europeans. They know what at least you know, have a fair idea of what to expect from them because they've had encounters with Spanish, uh, you know, the occasional Spanish coming in, kidnapping people and things like that. Well, this was a, an evolving idea um, all up and down the coast. Um, obviously, you know, Verrazano comes up in 1524 and he gets to Maine and the Abenaki moon him and... Mm keep him at great distance. And why is that the case? Because they've already in 1524 had encounters with European fishermen on yeah. that coast. Um, Champlain comes down and uh, encounters uh, in 1603, I believe, comes down that coast and encounters a, a, a Basque vessel crewed by Indians wearing European clothing, 1603. Yeah. So yeah. they, they had, were trading. They knew the benefits of European manufactured goods, and they knew that the Europeans wanted fur particularly. 
Uh, so that must have spread down. Those notions must have spread down the trading trails that came down from Iroquois country and all the rest. Uh, and not to mention the story with which my listeners are very familiar and you discuss a bit in your book, uh, uh, the story of Pequiquinio, Don Luis, who uh, came to that region, came from that region and returned in 1571 and yep. may or may not have still been alive uh, during the events of uh, 1607. Yes. Yeah. And, uh, you know, the, the incredible trove of knowledge and experience that he had, whether he was alive, you know, it's kind of controversial. You know, was he there? Well, controversial. It's, it's disputed, I guess. Yeah. Um, whether he was still alive and whether he was, uh, you know, uh, in, involved in the events uh, that I discuss in Jamestown. Um but whether he was or was not, the knowledge that he brought was there. <laughs> they, yeah. they, you know, he's everybody on the Chesapeake, or maybe not everyone, but certainly enough, and the people making policy decisions had a pretty fair understanding of what they were dealing with when the when the English arrived. Well, certainly, Wahoo Seneca, who I usually referred to as Paramount Chief Powhatan, yeah. and Opakankano, um would have known Don Luis. They were the yes. right generation. Right. May have been related by some means uh, and no doubt uh, would have had lengthy conversations uh, probably over some period of years unless he suddenly died uh, right after his massacre of the Jesuits. Anyway. Right. Yeah. All very. And may have been Opie Chankano. Yeah. For, for all we know, might, yeah. might have been him himself. Yeah. Yes. I, you know, I've yeah. struggled with the pronunciation yeah. of his name yeah. and I've, I pronounced it wrong for a long time. And then Helen Roundtree said, we don't really know how to pronounce it. So I went yeah. with that. And, uh, <laughs> That's what I, uh, <laughs> I, I uh, have struggled with the same things and was, was, was heartened by discovering nobody really knows how any of these things were pronounced, but I'm, you know, I'm, I'm coming at, at this, uh, the story of Jamestown from, from a different perspective than you and a different perspective than most of your listeners. I mean, in many ways, I think y'all are much greater expert about the, uh, um, your attentive listeners certainly <laughs> know an awful lot about the, the whole grand story of European colonization of North America. Uh, I, I began as an English professor yeah. studying James, James Joyce in early 20th century. And I actually came to this project. It was, it was a, came out of a, a course I was teaching with a colleague in the history department about um, castaway stories. We were just kind of fascinated by, this is back when when that TV show Lost was on and all those survivor reality spinoffs were very popular. And we, we were just kind of curious, what what is it, this trope that keeps coming up about castaways? Why are we so interested in that? So we taught a class in it and we just looked at, at stuff from, from the Odyssey through all the way up to uh, uh, the, the Walking Dead, which we consider a castaway story. And uh, originally I was going to write a book that was going to cover about 400 years of history, looking at that trope. And the, and, uh, the first chapter I started writing was, was the Sea Venture and Bermuda, and it, that turned into 400 pages cha chapter. So that became the book itself. It was so fascinating. Um, but uh, you know that, that that's a long way of uh, kind of admitting to a certain humility about this this topic because I'm I would say more of a historian of ideas than 
you know, someone who spent his career studying uh, early colonial America. Um, yeah. Well, I, I'm, I haven't spent my career doing it either. I'm just yeah. a corporate lawyer, but I've, I've been yeah. at this now for three and a half years grinding along pretty slowly as yeah. my listeners know. And so I've, mm. I've picked up a certain amount. Um, I want to get uh, toward the end of this. I want to have a debate over just for fun over Plymouth, yeah. Plymouth versus Jamestown. But um, <laughs> yes. before we, I don't want to, I don't want to burn bridges before then. Uh, <laughs> uh, so I, uh, the impression one gets from reading your book, and it's an impression, is that you kind of like John Smith, notwithstanding. I, 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 I could be wrong about that, but yeah. I, I, yeah. I, it feels like, uh, you know, at the end of the day, you like him. So tell me, tell me yeah. about John Smith and your conception of him and yeah. uh, why that might be the case. Well, yeah, I think there's there's two things to say about my my treatment of John Smith. One is that in my interpretation, I, I really think he, he essentially became what his enemies in Jamestown thought he was going to become, and that is basically a paramount chief, a la you know Algonquin culture. I mean, he was really rivaling Wahusanakak in in the Chesapeake region. Uh, and he was very wily about it. He was detaching certain, you know, what we would call tribes or districts from the Powhatan Confederacy that became allied with Jamestown. And he was doing it in the Native American fashion. Uh, so um, on, on the one hand, I think he, he actually was that character that his enemies thought he was, and that I think a lot of apologists have uh, tried to diminish. I mean, almost almost a pirate king on the, on the Chesapeake. Um, but on the other hand, he's the most fascinating character in the book. I mean, he's, and, and one of the most fascinating characters in American history. He is, was just incredibly resourceful. He was incredibly um, dynamic. Uh, people were attracted to him. People were repelled by him. There, were, there was not a whole lot of people in between. Uh, you know, his followers were absolutely devoted to him. Um, and in looking at, I, I look at about four years in the history of the Jamestown colony, and and the only time that they were successful was when he was running the thing. Um, I mean, I do think he was a tyrant. I do think he was, uh, you know, there, it, it, it's not a regime that I would have want to live under. But on the other hand, if, if it was live under John Smith or starve, certainly you would you would want the kind of leadership that he was providing. So he, I, I came away with tremendous admiration and respect for this guy. I mean, there's not many people that were his equal, I think, in history. And... Uh, it was a relatively small stage that that he got to play out those talents, but um, you know what what talents they were. <laughs> they were pretty tremendous. Will you tell the story of his early uh, exploits uh, over a few pages? And uh, uh, that's very evocative. I I think I just touched on them <laughs> myself, um, and I think that 
um, that brings him to life. And then, yeah. of course, he goes on to yeah. uh, he tries to get a new gig in the new world and he comes back and he maps the coast of New England and he invents the word New England. Yes. Uh, which is its own, you know, tremendously consequential idea because it 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 may have given the power of ideas led to uh, Plymouth and the mm. Bay in some yep. respect. So um, who knows? So, so uh, mm. I love little counterfactual. So if, if he yeah. hadn't been injured in the fall yep. of 1609 uh. and had managed to stick around, uh, you know, what might've happened in the next dozen years would the would the death rate have been lower uh yeah uh, you know yeah playing that counterfactual game it's a little tough to tell because what what he wasn't really good at was uh influencing the virginia company so yeah. uh it, it, it's hard to imagine that had he not been uh, suffered what, what I definitely consider after after James Horn's assessment, uh, a, an assassination attempt. Yeah. Uh, uh, had, had that not happened, had he had he remained a player on the Chesapeake, he was he was going to be demoted. Uh, you know, he's just basically going to be a garrison captain down down at the point. Um almost kind of banished from Jamestown. And I, I don't think he was going to win the corporate politics of the Virginia company. Um, and I and I don't use that word metaphorically. I use that literally. I mean, there was just a ton of corporate politics going on and he wasn't good at that game. Um, what he was, he was better, far better than anyone else on the Chesapeake. He was far better at colonization. So if the Virginia company had recognized that, and given him a couple of years in charge, uh, I think the, the English, the, the, the colony would have flourished tremendously. Uh, the English influence would have spread across the entire Chesapeake within a couple of years. Um, it's hard to say what, what exactly the relationships with the Native Americans would have looked like, but it, it, I don't think we would have had the, the kind of terrible wars that we had right after he left and then again. Uh, you know, in, in 1622, uh, I, I think the English presence would have been on much more solid ground and would have overawed the Native Americans much more quickly than it did. Fair enough. That's probably yeah. uh, as good a guess as we can as good a guess as we can come up with. So um, as uh, practically everyone who listens to this podcast knows, I'm a. Uh, Francis Drake fanboy for some of the reasons yeah. that you uh, like Smith, actually. Um, uh, astonishing resourcefulness yeah. in uh, incredibly alien parts of the world. I mean, one of the things that I think is uh, hard to understand today is the extent to which these places, Chesapeake in 1607, you know, west coast of the Americas in 1579. I mean, these were unbelievably alien places. Um, um, So maybe maybe, uh, tell us a bit how you integrate uh, Drake's voyage of 1573. Mm -hmm. Readers will remember that's when he went after the Mm -hmm. mule train crossing the Isthmus of Panama. Yes. Uh, How do you integrate that with your story? Yeah. 
you know, that, that's crucial. I mean, that, that's basically the key to the whole book. Um, and if I were a, a, a better writer, I would have figured out <laughs> how to tell another couple hundred years of history. And that when I, when I first submitted the manuscript to, the, to Bloomsbury, it was uh, 200 pages longer. And he said, no. I had I had about 250 pages before we even got to Jamestown, and it's supposed to be a book about Jamestown. So I had uh, it, Drake's role was even bigger be- before the editor's knife came uh, to the book. Damn now, uh, yes. <laughs> I had a lot about Roanoke, um, but uh, I. I am more fascinated. If, if you're going to talk about personal admiration, I came away with more personal admiration for Sir Francis Drake than John Smith. And as you say, there are a lot of ways very similar kind of characters. You know, people, you know, essentially commoners who are on the make. And, and now that there's uh, a little bit of mobility within Elizabethan and Jacobean society, they, you know, they make the most of that little bit of mobility. Mo- mobility within society. Um, what I think is particularly important about his uh, interaction with the Cimarrons in Panama is that this is the English encounter with a maroon community. And you know, as, as that's why the, the title of my book is Maroons, because what we see in that maroon community is a model for construction of a civil society basically from scratch. Um, this is a change. I mean, in a way, this is all anachronistic because this kind of political theory doesn't actually start getting articulated for another couple generations until we're well into the 17th century. But what the English are seeing and what Sir Francis Drake sees is, is a society of people who have stolen themselves out of slavery, fled into what is really a wilderness and an inhospitable wilderness at that. And they have nothing but their own resources to fall back upon. And they enter into a social contract with each other. Um, This is the modeling of what is going to end up being that political theory. And so those Cimarrons are kind of a prefiguration of what I think happens in Bermuda when we have the shipwreck and the, uh, uh, the the commoners on the sea venture decide that their contract with the Virginia Company has been dissolved by the salt water of the shipwreck and that they can enter into a new contract of mutual consent with each other. That's essentially what the Cimarrons are. Um, and Sir Francis Drake's respect for those people is is amazing. You know, it, it, it doesn't bear the later traces of the kind of racism that we see in the English colonies in North America. Um, not at all. As a matter of fact, he, he, he recognizes that he can't do what he wants to do without their help. And he has, uh, I, I think, tremendous respect for what they have constructed out there in the jungles of Panama, which is a pretty complex and populous society outside the, you know, beyond the border of what is officially what, you know, the Europeans would call civilization. Um, so uh, I think he, when he comes back and raids, you know, tries to topple the entire Spanish empire years later, his, his idea is that he's going to 
make allies with the Cimarron or the Maroon communities that are living beyond the borders of every single Spanish colony. Wherever you go, you're going to find these people who have escaped slavery and established their own societies, and they're going to be the English allies. And the English, this is going to be a, uh, a campaign of liberation. Uh, and and, and they believe that fervently. And then what we see when things go wrong on the ships is what I would describe as, as nation democracy as well. Because Sir Francis Drake is the, you know, he's the supreme commander of this entire campaign. And yet he listens to these petitions. Yeah. That, that are saying, listen, we, we, we signed on to, to make so much money, <laughs> you know, and we were willing to, you know, risk our lives to do it. And does it look like we're really going to get paid back? I think you're kind of your terms of the contract have not really been fulfilled. Maybe we need to rewrite this. You're, ta- you're, you're talking yeah. here just for uh, yeah. our mm. listeners. You're talking here about the 1585-86 yes. voyage to the Caribbean where he, um, um, among other things, takes a, takes a couple cities, including Cartagena, hostage, liberates yes. a bunch of slaves, and then what happens? Uh, well, th- what they were hoping to do, of course, was to topple the entire Spanish Empire. You know that this would this was going to be a spark that would start revolutions, and they were supposed to go on to Panama, where he was going to ally with those folks that he had made friends with when he was a pirate, when he was a Corsair. Um, but things have gone, I mean, they've, they've, they've sacked three cities and they've, you know, they've succeeded militarily, but they just haven't made much money. They haven't, they, they missed the, the, the treasure fleet. They haven't, you know, uh, plundered any great stores of, you know, bars of silver or anything like that. They've just pretty much fleeced the townsfolk of what they can. So they haven't, they've, they've made back most of the money up for the investment of the, the enterprise, but they haven't made, you know, four or five, 10 times the investment is what, what they were supposed to be doing. Um, and a lot of people have died. I mean, there's disease more than anything else has, has killed great numbers of, of the expeditionary force. So the prospects look pretty dim. And uh, that's when you know the, the, you know basically what you would call the foot soldiers of, of the enterprise, tell their captains, hey, we we'd rather go home than go to Panama, and uh, I'm sure Drake was disappointed to hear that, and of course he he also got intelligence that the Cimarrons had actually contracted a treaty with the Spanish in Panama, and that's of course going to influence the decision as well. Um, but I, I think what we really see happening on those ships is a mechanism by which the people who are being governed by this even military apparatus are able to uh, influence their governors. Um, and then, of course, he when he doesn't go to Panama, then he sails over to Roanoke and expects to find a you know a well-established garrison there, and instead finds people desperate to get back to England. Yeah, um, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, that's uh, and he ends up bringing it back. And so then that leads to the uh, mystery. So yeah. he, he he frees and takes on board some hundreds of enslaved peoples, probably of different uh, backgrounds, including African, but not yes. by any means exclusively African. Yeah. And 
he sails north. They blow off Panama. They take on water, I believe. Correct me if I'm wrong. This is now my memory. On the west coast of Cuba. And some of them go ashore there. But it was characterized as a small number in the narrative, as I recall. Then they sail north and they sack St. Augustine, uh, which is, you know, especially hilarious if you go to St. Augustine. You could buy a... <laughs> you, you can't buy a Francis Drake pint glass in San Augustine, <laughs> and 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 then and then they go north to Roanoke, and yeah, and you're and you're skipping over my my native South Carolina, where uh, they they you know missed some they they missed the Spanish colony, the little yeah, Spanish at, colony at, here, so we didn't get we don't get to have any Sir Francis Drake yeah, there paraphernalia, was a yeah, afford it. Paris Island, I think, right? Isn't that where it was? Yeah, St. Helena is, yeah, yeah. Yeah, and that had gone back uh, in one form or another to like 1526 or something uh, originally. The the French were even there at one point. I think it was Fort Caroline or something. No, no, that was uh, Florida, right? Uh, Yeah. 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 Yeah, but anyway, he was I mean it, it was it was it was the barest of outposts, but he he wanted to sack it and wasn't able to do it uh just cuz uh the fog and they weren't able to find it. So they went on to Roanoke. Damn. Missed yeah. opportunity. Yes, we'd be we'd be selling. We we Sir Francis Drake would be very big here if he had touched <laughs> touched on the shore, I could tell you. Yeah. I I, I, yeah. I can imagine. <laughs> missed yeah. missed opportunity. So, yeah. He gets to Roanoke and there's a storm. Uh, yeah. uh, first, he's going to resupply them, and then a storm hits, and this sort of breaks the morale of the remaining settlers, at least under yeah. some versions of this. Yeah, and he he they'd say, "Ah, oh, we want to go back." So he takes them on board, and and he he when he gets back to England, he doesn't have uh, by any account hundreds of. Uh, former slaves, African or otherwise. So right. they 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 left his fleet at some point. Yeah, and 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 it's really remarkable that nobody mentions them. You know, we there's there's no record of what happened to them, which is pretty strange in and of itself. I think um, I listened to your podcasts on that, and and I I thought. Your idea that that many of them ended up employed on the ships is is, is a pretty plausible explanation for at least ha- how many of them were disposed of. Uh, presumably, there there were a fair number of women and children too, and that um, you know they're not going to end up as seamen on on Drake ships. Uh, so I'm sure that they're still even had many of them become sailors. Uh, they're still plenty of people to dispose of that we don't know what happened to them. Um, well, and you probably heard yeah. my irritation yeah. that Jill Lepore claimed or <laughs> asserted or suggested yeah. that yeah. he just chucked yeah. them all overboard, which I think was wildly inconsistent with his character at that point. I, I was disappointed to hear that she did not respond to your query. She did not. <laughs> no. Uh, yeah, but I, I, that, that kind of thing crops up all the time, I think, when we when you talk about these, you know, they're, it, we're, we're often very quick to assume the worst about the motives of these people and, um, you know, make, make villains of them, I think, especially from the perspective uh, and, the, and the corrective. And I, I mean, I'm definitely, 
you know, if you're if you're talking in grand terms, I'm a revisionist historian, like like almost everybody else of my generation, where I think it's incredibly and crucially important to recover the point of view, not only of the conquerors, but the conquered and 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 recover that history as well. Um, but that doesn't mean uh, folks were always villains, you know, and, and I don't see any evidence in this case. It, that makes no sense to me. Uh, what I know of Sir Francis Drake, I would not expect him to be trying to sell these folks into slavery. Uh, I would absolutely, I mean, I, they would not have thrown anybody overboard like that. Uh, well, I mean, and that just goes it goes against their their entire character and the entire enterprise of of, of the expedition itself. Uh, yeah, and they had so many people had died from disease. Yeah. Uh, they had tons of extra room on these ships, and there were only I don't know like a hundred people they picked up from the Roanoke colony, and they should have had space for many hundreds so i think they had the capacity yeah but i would also have i would also believe that if you are a if you are a um uh somebody who's been enslaved by the spanish and you're in a hemisphere that was not where you planned to be in the first place and you've you've endured the miseries of transatlantic crossing uh, you might not want to do it again and it may well have been that at various points, uh, when offered the chance to go ashore, including in Western Cuba, yeah, uh, which I think uh, I think as good an explanation as any is a lot more of them went ashore in Western Cuba than was suggested by the account, yeah. Um, because you you just might say you know I'm going to take my chances here yes. rather than sail again across the ocean in one of these ships, especially yep. if you've just been liberated from slavery. Anyway, right. good good yep. spitballing um, yeah. discussion. Um, tell us about uh, Stephen Hopkins, who mm. is uh, um, I think you characterize him in one moment, perhaps with literary flair as the first true American. Uh, I may have been. I'm not, I'm not saying you're wrong. But tell us about Stephen Hopkins and uh, the yeah. importance of, uh, to your yeah. story. First true American is, 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 is a good way to uh, launch into talking about people. There's no one you could actually point to, I don't think, to say that. But it's fun to, to actually entertain the notion. And the reason, or if I were going to defend, and, and I'm, I'm happy to defend the idea that he is the first true American, uh, it's because what we discover about what happened on Bermuda after the shipwreck of the Sea Venture, the third supply of uh, uh, Jamestown, as, as your listeners, I'm sure know, ran into a hurricane. Uh, everyone thought the Sea Venture had been lost, that had gone down, but really it, it ran aground on a reef outside of Bermuda. Everybody was ferried ashore. Uh, no loss of life at all in, in the hurricane or the shipwreck. And immediately what begins happening in Bermuda is analogous to those Cimarrons who had escaped slavery in Panama. So uh, the settlers, the people who are going to be settlers in Jamestown, discovered the reality of what 
was going to be happening to them in Jamestown. And they probably discovered it on the passage because they had exposure to sailors who had been there. And they probably told them what was really going on in Jamestown while they had signed on as, as a result of this tremendous media blitz that the Virginia Company had uh, very successfully employed across England to raise money and to raise recruits for this gigantic you know, uh, settling of Jamestown. They got, they wanted to get 800 settlers. They had about 500. Um, so they knew, they understood that they had been hoodwinked by the time they had the shipwreck. And then immediately, um, Sir Thomas Gates begins employing the second charter for Jamestown, which essentially gives him tyrannical powers. Uh, so they see what, what the administration of Jamestown is going to be like not only the incompetence that they've heard about in the previous couple of years, but now the kind of tyranny that Gates is going to employ. And meanwhile, they've found themselves in paradise. You know, uh, Bermuda is, and they think of it in these terms, they, they, they think of it as Eden. They have, they have, you know, discovered the Garden of Eden, essentially. Uh, they don't have to work very hard to find food. Uh, the weather's pretty temperate. You know, they're not going to die if they stay there. You know, they can, why not colonize here? But Gates, of course, is very intent on getting to Virginia because that's where he gets to be governor. That's where he's going to make his fortune. That's where his career, you know, is going to be launched. It's not going to be by leading this this maroon community on, on Bermuda. So right away, there's this conflict of interests between the settlers and Gates and the loyalists from the company. Um, the first thing Gates does is uh, establishes his corps de garde, who are going to guard the stores that they salvage off the ship and are going to guard gates and are going to uh, enforce his policies. It's not very long before, uh, you know, he starts building a boat for them to sail to, not back to England, but to sail, continue their voyage to Virginia. And it's an unpopular project. In order to get it done, he's got to form these work gangs with overseers who are pretty much, you know, from what we can tell, they're overseers with the connotations that go along with that word that we have from plantation slavery uh, in the American South later. Um, their mutinies begin almost right away. Uh, you know, he, he discovers them because the conspiracies almost inevitably reach the ears of somebody who pretends to be sympathetic but is really loyal to the company and they get revealed and, and he puts them down. The sailors essentially stage their own mutiny and go to a different island with Admiral Summers and establish their own colony there and start building their own boat. Um, so what what happens in, uh, in, in Bermuda is uh, exactly well, not exactly. I, uh, it's not exactly, but it's definitely analogous to what's happening in slave colonies in the Spanish, uh, Spanish Americas. So what's remarkable about Stephen Hopkins is he's the one guy, he's the one commoner that we hear his voice at all in the narratives. And we hear his voice because William Strachey, who is uh, the 
you know, who, who ends up becoming the secretary for, for Jamestown and, and is ingratiating himself to Gates, uh, writes this long narrative. And Hopkins is the villain of that narrative. And we have about, you know, two pages worth of text where Strachey tells us how Hopkins developed his own conspiracy in January of 1610. And uh, Strachey's purpose, of course, is to discredit him. And, and his expectation is that people who would be reading this narrative would be thoroughly discredited by the description of Hopkins. Uh, Shakespeare buys into Strachey's description of Hopkins. But this is where I, where I was talking earlier in the podcast about maybe just you know turning the lens a little bit, looking at things from just a, a little bit of a different angle, and you can interpret it very differently. So if we actually listen to what uh, is recorded or what what Strachey claimed Hopkins was doing, it sounds very much like what we would describe as American democracy. He tells the uh, the other. Uh, castaways that they signed on to a contract with the Virginia company. Uh, the Virginia company was supposed to deliver them to Jamestown. They would give them a certain number of years of labor. Um, but, the, but the hurricane interrupted that contract, frustrated the contract. So the Virginia company did not fulfill its end of the obligation. And because of that, the contract was dissolved and they were political free agents. They could do whatever they wanted. They were they were beholden to the government of no man, meaning Gates, of course. And they could go out onto their own island and enter into a community with each other on terms that they choose. And if they didn't want to, they didn't have to. They could The only responsibility they had is to themselves and to their family. And they could pursue those interests in any way that they saw fit. Um, so this is, I mean, there are echoes of the Declaration of Independence in this, you know, this report of what Stephen Hopkins is saying. And of course, this is before uh, Hobbes and Locke and Grotius and any of the, you know, the political theorists of the 1600s. Um, but it's because the experience of being cast away, first of all, is an extraordinarily psychologically trying experience. So you're, you're, you pass through a trial that really, you know, sets you, you up for uh, dramatic change. You're, you're probably going to be more receptive to severing your ties with the old world and the old regime if you go through that kind of extremity of experience. And the three days of fighting the hurricane, thinking you're going to drown, being miraculously saved, finding yourself in Eden, uh, I think prepared these people psychologically to say, we're cutting ties with the company. We're going to rebuild something according to our own terms. Um, and Hopkins, so, Hopkins was, by uh, Strachey's account, uh, art, very articulate. He was a yeah, charismatic yeah. speaker, yeah. apparently. Uh, yeah. Somebody who could gather followers. <laughs> he had an adamantine tongue. <laughs> he could. You know, so for, from Strachey's point of view, he's really good at tricking people in, into following him. You know, but if you, again, if you turn that lens a little bit, you know, he, the, the guy is a great orator and he's very persuasive. And people were persuaded by this argument, you know, and uh, so, you know, that, I, I find him 
th- this tremendous character because he has that, you, you, you know, like some of our, you know, he's, he's like, I don't know, Abraham Lincoln or some, an orator or, or MLK. He's got that kind of influence on people through his voice, through his words. Um, but he's also just a plain, normal, mediocre, average guy, you know? I mean, he's not university educated. Uh, he's literate, which which is a distinction, of course, at the time. Uh, you know, he's maybe a minor officer in the Anglican church, uh, but he's not. there's nothing exalted about him at all. He's definitely very solidly ensconced in the 98% of English population who are commoners and not in the 2% who are exalted by being gentlemen or, you know, even in the minor aristocracy, which, of course, is part of why Strachey has this contempt for him, too, because Strachey's family, his father bought their way into the aristocracy, just as Shakespeare bought his way into the aristocracy. So, um, you know, he's looking down at, at the notion of people being free political agents and, and able to make decisions about their own lives on their own authority as an incredibly crazy idea and, and an idea that they presume would lead to anarchy and savagery. Um, but of course, it's the foundation of democracy. Uh, and Stephen Hopkins is living it out. You know, So Hopkins is also uh, distinguished by being uh, the only person who had experience in the Chesapeake Yes. Uh, also to sail on the Mayflower. Uh, yes. And he was one of the strangers. He was obviously not a Puritan separatist. Yeah. Uh, but he was along, probably perhaps because he was known to have experience. Perhaps he wanted to get back to having gotten back to England. He decided, no, this actually is uh, not that awesome. Maybe we should try it again in the new world. Yeah. Um, mm. And 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 he's one of the signers of the Mayflower Compact. Yes. Uh, so um, I'd say uh, it's probably at the level of speculation, but mm-hmm. uh, I suspect you would suggest that it's hard to think that Hopkins would not have influenced the idea of developing a compact under which they should all be governed. Yeah. And if, if you look at how that compact came to be written in the first place, and this, of course, is from William Bradford's of Plymouth Plantation. So, again, we have the the history is being told by the party line. It's not, you know, he I, I wouldn't call him a, you know, a chump of the Virginia company, but he certainly, you know, he becomes part of the established authority in Massachusetts. And this is the you know, the, the, the official story of, of how this came about. And that's because some of the strangers were saying, listen, we're about to land in uh, territory that is outside the patent that we officially have. So we're, we're going to be establishing a colony that already breaks the contract. You know, we, we're, we're supposed to be establishing a colony according to the terms of this contract and we're not going to be doing it. We're going to be doing it somewhere else. Therefore, that contract is dissolved. And once we set foot on land, we are going to become political free agents. I mean, they don't use that term, but essentially that's what is meant, which is exactly what Stephen Hopkins's argument was in Bermuda. So it's, it's really hard to imagine that this agitation among the strangers that, that Stephen Hopkins didn't have anything to do with that because 
it, it, it's almost a carbon copy of the argument that he made in Bermuda. Um, and then Bradford says, we, we came up with the Mayflower Compact to protect us from those strangers. We needed to have some government to, to prevent the kind of anarchy that was going to ensue if strangers got their way. Um, but that's a, that's a story told by Bradford himself. And I think, uh, I, and again, this, this is speculation, but the, the circumstantial evidence seems pretty, pretty weighty to me, is that uh, the Mayflower Compact itself sounds like it resembles what Stephen Hopkins was trying to accomplish when he would take his co-conspirators out to a different island in Bermuda, and they would enter into some government of mutual consent. Um, so, so, so if I could pop in, though, I would, I would only offer the following, I would say, qualification that both supports that point of view, but, but gives Bradford a little more credit. Hopkins, let's say he advanced his notion of the broken contract. Uh, um, his arguments would have landed on far more fertile soil with Bradford and Edward Winslow because as Puritans, separatists, but Puritans, they were, they were, you know, um, deeply committed to the whole notion of covenant theory, which was this central tenet of their religion. There were these series of contracts uh, between a person and God, uh, between the members of a congregation and so forth. And this was their whole way of thinking. Uh, yes. so, yeah. so if Hopkins comes rolling out and says, wait a minute, we've got a contractual issue here. Yeah. You know, he wouldn't have been dismissed. Bradford and Winslow right. and such would have had to scratch their heads and take it seriously, uh, yeah. which, which made for a different outcome. Yes. Uh, and, and and I think the subsequent history where Hopkins is actually, you know, plays along, <laughs> you know, he, he, he's, he's no longer an outsider, you know, when they get there. He's, he's kind of an essential cog in the machine, if you will, of, of the colony. Um, I think I think that would lend credence to the notion that even if he suggested it, 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 it might fall on receptive ears, as you say. Um, well, the other thing, the other thing I wanted to start to interrupt, the other thing that fascinated me when I read your book, and I don't know that you suggested this, but Hopkins had several years of experience in the Chesapeake and toward the end of his time, I, that remind me when he, do you know when he left the Chesapeake? Do we know that? Uh, we don't know that. Um... We, we don't know it specifically, and I forget when the first, there, I mean, we have, there's a record of when we first know he's back in London, and I, off the top of my head, I can't remember So it's probably when that is. So, 16, 16, 15, 16, 17, probably somewhere something in there. like that, yeah. And that was just when, in Jamestown, everyone was figuring out that collective farming was yeah. the sort of catastrophe that yes. collective farming always turns out to be, by the way. This seems to be right. one of yeah. the lessons that humanity needs to relearn yeah. constantly. Yeah. Um, I found it super curious that um, pilgrims abandoned collective farming within about 18 months 
of having arrived. That had been their whole hypothesis, and they had this covenant with their investors yeah. that they would yeah. be doing all this work. And I, once I read your book, I was like, I wonder if Hopkins said, uh, guys, I know this is not going to work. Uh, <laughs> and they've even yeah. stopped doing it on the Chesapeake. Yeah. No, I didn't write about that at all. I think that's that's a, a fascinating theory. And, and uh, I know an awful lot more about Jamestown than I know about Plymouth. I can tell you that. So I, I, I don't feel like I'm an expert to, to confirm or deny yeah, it's, that, that explanation. But it, it makes perfect sense. Uh, um, and... Uh, yeah, certainly we know Plymouth is, has learned some of the lessons from Jamestown. They know what didn't work. It's a little surprising that they would even try collective farming in the first place after well, they had the experience a, of doing it. Their contract with their uh, investors required, as it was eventually sorted out, that they sort of work full time for the benefit yeah. of the investors. So they had yeah. overseers as well. Yeah. Uh, and... Um, they broke free from that because of uh, um, changed circumstances very quickly. But um, so uh, you finished what you wanted to say about Hopkins. Now, there's, one, there, there's one more thing I wanted to add, and, and, and this is about, uh, you know, did the, the Mayflower Compact come from covenant theory or did it, did it come from Stephen Hopkins and this kind of radical notion of democracy? Um, the covenants that uh, the, the the experience with covenant theory, and and this is I think borne out in uh, Winthrop's sermon on the Arbella, which is you know where we get this city on a hill image that has become of such mythic importance in our own understanding of, of what the United States is. Um, the covenant is between the people and God, and the and the big distinction in the Mayflower Compact is it's a covenant between the people. It is not be between the people and God. So in uh, in the Arbella sermon, uh, the deal made is if you, if you keep us from getting shipwrecked, we will keep our faith with you. That's it. So if God, if you preserve us and let us land safely, we're, we will establish a colony that will be faithful to the worship of you. So the covenant is, I mean, it's a very different kind of covenant than when people get together mutually and say, listen, we've got to get some some government. We have to accept some authority. Let's agree together to establish this government, which is going to have authority over all of us because all of us have agreed to it in the first place. So I, I think it's a very different kind of a different mentality goes into those two kinds of documents. Fair enough. I, I would um, um, suggest that, you know, Bradford looked at the world a bit differently than than uh, Winthrop. Yeah. Um, and uh, it's clear that having been exiled as a group, um, you know, the separatists um viewed themselves as having made commitments to each other mm -hmm. uh to a degree that probably wasn't the case on the winter mm. fleet where people would were just sort of gathered yeah. up from all around england um yeah. so winthrop had to yeah. deliver a very different message there yeah. um and um 
Uh, anyway, fascinating conversation. One could go. Yeah. One could go. Uh, uh, you know, yeah. this is uh, this is arcane stuff. So, a uh, couple more points. Uh, a couple more topics. Do you have? Do you still have some time? I don't yeah, want to. Yeah. Okay. Sure. Yeah. Um, so, uh, one of the uh, uh, topics I find fascinating uh, are these young people, mostly men, uh, mostly boys, who are sort of traded to the other societies and they, they occupy some middle ground between being, you know, kind of uh, translators in training and hostages. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and the, the, we get the, the famous example of Namantuck and Thomas Savage in the early exchange. Yeah. Uh, but there's a whole bunch of these. And, and, and yeah. at one level, Pocahontas becomes one of the few females in this category in the English world, yeah. the Spanish had some, um, you know, how do you, how do you think about these guys in their, in the middle ground? Yeah. I mean, I, I, I think they probably represent the middle ground better than anybody else because, uh, you know, you take someone like Thomas Savage who, um, is sort of half hostage, half, half. Uh, I, I wouldn't say ambassador because he's he's a kid. You know, he's a teenager. But but the English surrender him because they want him to learn the language and come back and become this incredible resource for communicating with the Algonquins. Uh, so they, uh, any of these, you know, th- these type of people end up. With one foot in both worlds, you know they're they're Savage is not entirely English, but he's not entirely Native American. We're always kind of curious about where his loyalties lie. Um, does he have loyalties? What is it? You know, they um, Nemantak I think is a, a another interesting representation of that that same mentality. Maybe less so than Thomas Savage. We don't really have a, and much evidence that he gets won over to the English way of thinking that as a matter of fact, it's probably worth pointing out that we don't really have very many examples of people who are won over to the world of civilization to, you know, putting that in square scare quotes. Uh, we have lots of examples of people being won over to the world of savagery. And again, savagery and scare quotes. Um, it seems to be almost a one-way street yeah. <laughs> where, where, where people are going to abandon civilization for the more attractive life of the savage. And we don't have many savages abandoning the life of the savage to enjoy the benefits of the stratified caste society of, of civilization. Um, what happened in Namantak in, in Bermuda, I mean, that's talk about a fascinating mystery apparently he gets killed he doesn't come back it isn't you know he arrives in bermuda runs off into the woods with machumps and uh you know one account from smith kind of you know uh, where he got you know it's a third fourth hand how do we know really but the story is that machumps killed him and buried him chopped him up and buried him uh why would Machumps do that? It's hard to imagine. Maybe uh, maybe because they thought he was yeah. too English. <laughs> it's it's very tempting to 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 go down that road. As, as again, we don't you know that's that's speculation. We we don't know, but he he like Thomas Savage is occupying this middle ground, right? He is uh, the embodiment of this world. So. Um, 
I mean, one of the things for, for our point of view, and I think the point of view of, of your podcast being the history of the Americans, uh, why is the middle ground so important? Uh, I think because it's a, it's a way of recuperating the old frontier thesis, um, you know, that uh, Frederick Jackson Turner, I think 1892, I think was when he first yeah. voiced it. Uh, and it kind of goes out of favor. And then it kind of gets, I, I think that the middle ground is a way of recuperating what I think ought to be recuperated out of the frontier thesis. And of course, this is an explanation of American exceptionalism. How are we different than those Europeans that settled America. We, 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 we like to flatter ourselves that, that we are a, 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 you know, a different kind of person than the European. Uh, and I think it's more than flattery. I think we are different. And that distinction, I think, at least originally came from what was taking place in that middle ground. Um, so so at the rehabilitation of Turner, and so for my listeners, Turner was the historian in the late 19th century who uh, essentially developed a theory of the frontier as shaping the American character. Uh, and it's, there's more to it than that. Um, um, uh, but, but there's been a sort of long, uh, century-long, I'd say, historiography that tries to sort of pick apart uh, pick at and take apart Turner. Uh, and, uh, you have one offhand comment, which I'm, I'm going to not quote exactly. It's just coming from memory where you suggest that, you know, this may be a little too easy for historians to do. You can always take incremental pot shots, if you will. Uh, have you, have you gotten feedback from any historians on that aspect of your analysis or, uh, uh, no. And this is, uh, you know, as, as you, I, I think you've been dealing with historians, you, you, you know, the breed, uh, you know, just as well as I do. I, I'm an outsider, you know, yeah. uh, a different kind of outsider than you are, but definitely an outsider. Uh, and this, this is the second narrative history book that I wrote. And, you know, I'm, I'm coming from the world of literary criticism. I'm coming from the world of 20th century. Uh, and it, and it's a very tough world. The, the, uh, the world of historians is, is 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 pretty hard to break into. Uh, yeah, I, and 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 I was kind of disappointed not not by I, I would have welcomed the pot shots and the arguments and be able to get into that. Uh, I would I would have to say with you know all humility that it's it, it it's been greeted more with 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 a lack of attention than anything else. Um, so, which is one of the reasons I'm delighted that 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 you were taken with the book and uh, you know you're. I know we don't agree on everything, but but your approbation is is important to me, and uh, and and I hope the folks who are on your podcast are the the people that I was writing for. I was not writing for other historians. I was writing for the educated general reader who's interested in this kind of stuff. Um, I've gotten a lot of feedback from those kind of folks, uh, but from the official, you know, it, it wasn't even you, know, you would expect you know, 20 reviews and historical journals. And, you know, that didn't happen. Uh, a few here and there, but yeah, uh, yeah. but I, w I was kind of disappointed. Um, I, I, I would have, I, 
better than silence is 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 argument and pot shots you know um, yeah I, yeah. I you know uh, that's its own long conversation and yeah. i get to charleston about every two years so maybe we'll defer mm. that to one over beer yeah uh, <laughs> that sounds uh, pretty good and, and uh yeah. I, i'll report back don't worry but uh um okay so um let's go to well actually that was one of my uh pre-advertised surprise questions has the book been received by historians um uh, i will I, I will jump in there though to to uh you know for, for my little bit of bragging on myself uh james horn and william kelso up at at jamestown you know i i, I met with them they toured me around uh you know I, I talked with them about stuff beforehand james horn blurb the book uh they were absolutely wonderfully supportive essentially of somebody who is you know unpublished in the field so I, I i do want to give a shout out to them those those guys are just great great colleagues well that's uh that's wonderful to hear uh, i'd love to have james horn on this podcast yeah. actually um so um Let's let's go out with uh, two surprise questions. Uh, surprise me! I didn't send them to you ahead of time. Um, so the first one, it, it, the the, fir- the second one, we'll conclude with having it out over Plymouth and Jamestown. Um, the first one, I'm, I, I ask uh, or have done before. If you had a Star Trek like Universal Translator <laughs> and could have any sort of five or six characters from early America together for uh, for a dinner. Uh, oh, my God. Uh, uh, yeah. Allowing for the possibility that John Smith might be one of them. Yeah. Yes, uh, yeah. <laughs> John Smith would have to be. Oh, I mean, that guy is so fascinating. Um, and I, for, for one thing, and I presume you get to be at the dinner as well, right? Well, uh, so you, yeah, yes. Or we have different dinners and comparing well, well, notes. I, yes. I, I, yes. I mean, I get to talk with John Smith. I don't just put him together with other people. Yes, yes, uh, yes. For one thing, I, I would I would want to see for myself how much was bluff and bluster and how much was was bona fide. I'm, you know, for 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 centuries, you know, he was discredited as making all this stuff up, and then, you know, mid twentieth century, start discovering now he was actually telling the truth about a lot of this stuff that happened to him. Um, so John Smith would absolutely be in there. Um, uh, when you're defining early, you're going back to Sir Francis Drake then? Sure, why uh, not? Yeah, I mean, uh, I mean, and that's not just, you know, sucking up to the podcast because as you can, you can tell from my treatment of Drake, I mean, I, I thought the guy was fantastic. Um, uh, Waha Sonicock would have to be in that, I mean, we are, you know, we don't get his point of view much at all. I mean, really, when we when we talk about the the policy that he's trying to impose, um, we're speculating almost all the time. But the guy was, at least from my assessment, the guy was a genius. First of all, before the English even show up, to have established a paramount chiefdom that had somewhere in the neighborhood of thirty to thirty-five districts on the Chesapeake was itself within that society just an a tremendous achievement. I mean, this he was a political genius. Um, what would have happened 
had the English not showed up there, say they had really settled in North Carolina, so they were near enough for him to be getting European weapons, et cetera, but had another generation or two on the Chesapeake to establish a um, more centralized government uh, along Native American terms. Uh, you know, that would have been, it's just, uh, what he was doing in the Chesapeake was interrupted by Jamestown and, and what he achieved already was, was stunningly remarkable. Um, so he would be one, uh, Pocahontas, of course. I mean, you'd have to, you'd have, I, I, I think, uh, um, she is one of the most fascinating characters in American history, much more of an enigma, I think, than, than a John Smith. We just have tons and tons of words about from his own, from his own pen. Um, but she seemed to have, uh, you know, genuine affection and a genuine interest in in the English as well as in the Native Americans. I in, in my mind, you know, uh, I, I did my graduate work at Texas. I grew up as, as a teenager in Texas and I was fascinated by a figure named Quanta Parker uh, outside the realm of your uh, you know, the scope of, of what you look at, which is much earlier. But he's, he's the guy who brought the Comanche in from the plains and onto the reservation. Uh, and I think of Pocahontas as a, as a character like him who sees what's coming uh, and, and is trying to reshape society according to the new reality. Um, so just another, so uh, uh, he, he wouldn't go into your, your little scenario of dinner here, uh, but yeah. I, but I put Pocahontas in cause I, cause I think of her in the same terms as I think of Quanta Parker. Um, let's see, uh, how, how far up in history can I go? Well, I, I <laughs> through colonial. I, uh, no, I don't, I wouldn't. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, let's not uh, go to colonial just cause we haven't gotten we're we're, we're about yeah. six, our high watermarks about 1655. Yeah. Um, but you yeah. could certainly move up the coast. Like, mm-hmm. like I think an interesting con, I think an interesting conversation yeah. if you wanted to have a more focused one would be, yeah. Smith and Wausenacock and Bradford and Massasoit or Edward Winslow and Massasoit. And you got your universal translator and maybe you throw in Champlain whose view of the whole relationship with Indians was different still. Yeah. And you talk through, all right, you know. Well, you, you, let me post this challenge to you and you tell me if I'm wrong, but I feel like we would know what Bradford would say at dinner. I mean, I, I mean, it would be, of course, fascinating to to meet him and and hear him, but that, that, that's, I don't, I don't feel like we'd come away from dinner knowing something we didn't know going in from him. That you know, that that might be right. Uh, yeah. We might know if he had a sense of humor or not, <laughs> yeah. which, which I don't think we know yet. I think the answer's no. <laughs> but, uh, but but I could be wrong. That would be fascinating to see. But Massasoit, I'd much rather. Massasoit would would be very interesting. Uh, And uh, uh, yeah, and I, you know, (laughs) maybe you have to have several dinners. I have to have some, some sort of dinner with Drake. Uh, But 
you know, um, that's a whole that's a whole different. Well, ball you know, of wax. I, I would I would put also into that just uh, you know obviously I'm I'm kind of dumping on him uh, in the book and and in this, but uh, I really think William Strachey is is a really interesting guy too. Uh, I mean, he is he he's kind of a company flunky, but I think his true reportery ought to be. I mean, I, I think every American school child should be reading. The true reportery, or at least excerpts from it, uh, as as we, we should know it, I think as Americans as well as we know of Plymouth Plantation. Now I, I know a lot of people don't know that they know of Plymouth Plantation, but but they know it with, without knowing where these stories came from. Um, the true reportery, if it, if, if uh, you, you could go back and and read this today. And it, it just sounds modern. It just sounds, I mean, it, he, he was a great writer. He wanted to be, you know, a, a Ben Johnson, a William Shakespeare. He wanted to break into that London literary set. And he was always on the fringe and just never, he, he basically squandered his, you know, his, his modest fortune trying to, to become one of those guys. And they, they, they let him hang out, but they didn't do much more than that. But the true reporter <laughs> is his masterpiece. I mean, yeah. it is a, uh, even though I say we want to, we want to read between the lines of it. It, it, it is a beautiful piece of writing. You know? Interesting. Um, well, I've actually yeah. only read little bits of it. So I, yeah. I, uh, I, I may have mm. to, I may have to go off and do it. Yeah. All right. So let's, uh, let's, let's, t- let's talk about, um, Jamestown versus Plymouth yeah. as the founding American legend. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I guess, yes, I guess yeah. there's two, uh, two angles of attack I can imagine one one angle of attack is to say all right so which has in fact had uh, the greatest influence on the development of um uh, English North America and the United States and the other is mm-hmm. yes. I suppose which ought we wish would have had right. the yes. greatest influence and those yeah. are those are possibly two different answers yeah I uh, I I would say one way to answer that question, especially with with the first issue, which has had the most impact, uh, was settled with the Civil War. I mean, that's one way to to answer that because there were competing ways of thinking of America's origin, and really before the Civil War, Jamestown was probably more prominent myth of American origin than Plymouth. It's only around 1840 that Plymouth starts getting traction, and then the Civil War establishes the pilgrims as as the mythological origin story because the north wins and the south loses um now uh i mean looking at and 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 i think that the the way of life of massachusetts you know the yeoman farmer as opposed to the to the plantation with with uh you know gangs of slaves under overseers that becomes of course the economic model for the country as well and that's that's going to be that's the you know coming from the northeast as opposed to the south um when we talk about um we talk about these origin stories as mythology and and again i'm i'm coming from a literary perspective so when i say mythology i don't there, there's no, uh, there's a great deal of respect for that. We always have myths. Uh, it doesn't mean that they are ahistorical. Um, and of course, we want to make sure that the myths that we believe in have their foundation in accurate history. Um, 
but there are two competing myths that come out of the out, out of the two places. Uh, the the origin story that comes out of Plymouth is an Exodus story. This is the people who are escaping, you know, God's chosen people who are escaping persecution. And this is where that, that covenant that I was talking about comes in too. The, uh, the way they succeed is by retaining their faithfulness to the religion that they are bringing with them to the new world. In essence, the, um, the way of thinking is that we have to, we're going to get to the new world. We're going to escape the old world. We're going to bring with us our faith and <clears throat> we're going to succeed if we are able to keep from getting corrupted, if we are going to maintain the faith of our fathers. And what that suggests is that the infiltration of other peoples and other ways of life is something that is debilitating. And so we have in the second half, for example, of Bradford's of Plymouth Plantation is really not an Exodus story, but it's a Jeremiah. It's a, it's a harangue of the younger generation for slipping away from the faith of our fathers. So it's all, and, and, and there are literary critics who think the Jeremiah is, is actually the characteristic genre of American literature, the harangue to, we, we have to go back to being true to what, what our fathers and grandfathers had. Now, the other, the myth that I think ought to compete with that is not the original Jamestown before the Civil War myth. And that myth was, was a myth of aristocracy, the, the notion that Pocahontas and John Rolfe were this melding of European and Native American culture, but what came out of it was an aristocracy um, that, that, that validated the structure of Southern society as it was before the Civil War. Um, I mean, I, I don't want to restore the stature of Jamestown in order to restore that story. Uh, I want to restore the story of Jamestown to come up with another myth, and, and that that myth is embodied by that word marooned. We are castaways, and every this is what I think ought to be the the myth that we have about our own origin story is that we are castaways, found, find ourselves on the frontier, in the middle middle ground, and we have to come together and create some society, recreate civil society that is going to work in this environment. It's going to be different than what we left. It's going to be different than what we encountered, but it's going to be influenced by both of them. It's going to salvage what it can from the wreck, and it's going to take what it needs from the new world. Um, now, I think the Pilgrim story or what happens in Massachusetts, can, there, there are the, someone could write the same book that I wrote about Jamestown could be written about Plymouth Plantation and the Massachusetts Bay Colony telling the story of the people who get exiled, <laughs> the people, you know, the the uh, the people who are rejected by the, the fairly, I don't know, almost theocratic society that is set up in the early days in the, in the 17th century, um, and we have plenty of those figures that that are coming out of New England, um, who, you know, are the castaways, literally cast out of society. Um, and I don't. I mean, it's not like they're unknown to history, but I think the same the same mythology of being castaways and maroons who are entering into a contract of mutual consent with each other. That same story can be told 
out of New England. It just isn't. That's, that's not the story we tell. Instead, what do we have even today? Uh, and I've had arguments with, with literary critics about this because they say, oh, no, the, the canon has been revised. The Pilgrim myth doesn't have as much influence in today's society as it used to. I, I would dispute that. I think it's still the, the dominant uh, the dominant myth of American origin, and that is embodied in our our embracing of this image of the city on the hill. That's in our generation, and well, you and I are maybe not today's generation anymore. We're yesterday's generation, uh, yesterday and today. Uh, you know, ever since Reagan revived that. Yeah. that image. I think it has been kind of in, in American political discourse, that's the dominant image of American society is the shining city on a hill. Um, and and that's part of the story of uh, it, it, it's almost, I mean, I, I know Reagan and Reagan's image, he said, we're a city on a hill. There's great walls, but we have doors in those walls and that kind of thing. Yes. Okay. He, he, he did. He did allow for that. But the city on a hill is not really an image of a great and tremendous variety of people who have come together and somehow have to live together and in each generation recreate civil society and figure out how are we going to get along? How are we going to make mutual decisions? How are we going to respect everybody's right to, to consent to their own governance? Um, the city on the hill doesn't really lend itself to, to that kind of image of American society. And I think what, what is really exceptional about us as a people is this unbelievably spectacular variety of people who are living together on these shores. Um, and that's, that's the, you know, being marooned, being castaway, that's, that's what, you know, that, that, that is the myth that can support that kind of vision of American society. All right. So, um, so I don't necessarily disagree with all of that. Um, I, I would say that your last point with regard to the diversity of the population, you know, um, if you haven't, uh, doing a little side reading and I know you've got another project going on, but doing, yeah. uh, doing a little side reading on new Netherland, uh, uh-huh. might be very interesting for you because New York yeah. was, the truly diverse New Amsterdam yeah. actually yes. was truly the yes. diverse place because uh, yeah. the Dutch didn't care as long as there was money to be made. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And that made it its yeah. own fascinating thing. What I would say in defense of Plymouth is, is first of all, I would separate Plymouth uh, from the Massachusetts Bay. Yeah. Stephen Hopkins did not move to Massachusetts. He stayed in Plymouth, and probably for a reason. Um, the uh, Plymouth, uh, through the efforts of Bradford and Wisla- Winslow, um, maintained the peace uh, for 50 years with the local tribes. It's a record unexcelled anywhere in European North America. There is no such thing. Obviously, the Puritans of the Massachusetts Bay uh, were quite different. They uh, uh, fought the Pequots, 36 to 38, the Narragansetts, all the way up and down. Uh, They showed up 
with men in arms. Uh, but Plymouth wasn't like that. Plymouth stayed small. It was isolated. It was democratic in some degree in its tradition. And I suspect, without having read the back half of on Plymouth, Planta- Plymouth Plantation, is that, you know, um, Bradford was worried about what would happen, which is King Philip's War came when the next generation, the generation that hadn't known the reason for the peace in the first place, uh, came along. Um, uh, but you're r- certainly right. The, uh, the uh, uh, example of Roger Williams, uh, you know, setting up Providence and defending it as a matter of law uh, against all comers without ever actually having to fire a shot uh, is uh, also its own example from New England. It's a, yeah. it's a, it's a uh, uh, great argument. Well, I, I want to, um, probably time to wrap this up at this point. I want to um, thank you for writing Marooned. Um, and I want to highly recommend to our listeners that you run out and buy it. Um, I will put a link in the show notes for this episode on the website, uh, but I'm sure all the usual means, Amazon, etc., cetera, uh, Marooned by Joseph Kelly, Jamestown, Shipwreck, and A New History of America's Origin. Uh, and it's really a, a wonderfully written book as well, um, uh, which uh, reveals your background, no doubt, as a as a literary scholar rather than perhaps a history scholar. So uh, thank you very much. I very much appreciate it. Thank you, Jack. Appreciate it. Thank you again for listening to the History of the Americans podcast. Your emails have been very encouraging. Please keep them coming. You can reach me with questions, corrections, eruptions of indignation, or pats on the back on the contact page for the website, thehistoryoftheamericans.com, or by email at thehistoryoftheamericans at gmail.com. And please do me the great favor of giving the podcast a five-star rating on Apple and following me on X and the Facebook page for the podcast. Until next time.